You're listening to the weekly podcast of Hope Community Church, where we desire to see people transformed by the love of Christ. Join us as we study God's Word together. Great privilege to be with you today, and many blessings upon our pastor, Pastor Joel, and uh, pray a rich time for his family at Wheaton as Angel graduates. But I love coming here. And I'm delighted to be talking about uh, the habits of the soul. I understand you're in a series, and Joel kind of updated me as to where you're at in this. And I think when we talk about habits of the soul, there are some immediate objections from the modern mind. Uh, On the one hand, I think there's this whole uh, percentage of people that might acknowledge that there's uh, some kind of mystical element to the human being, something deep down uh, that can get a little off kilter that needs to be addressed. And the answer to doing that is to dig deeper into yourself, right? The whole kind of self-help section of uh, the bookstores that you just say, yeah, something's a little off deep inside. I should just experiment. But at the end of the day, if I can just go a little bit deeper and figure things out for myself, then all of a sudden I'll be enlivened and walking uh, the way that uh, that I ought to be. Now, the other side, equally as challenging, are those who we sometimes call the physicalists, that this is the group that doesn't uh, believe in the soul at all, that they're just materialists. So they say, well, I know that human beings have often used that word soul, but really what we mean by that is just a misfiring chemically in the brain, that if we treat it right with the you know, drugs and uh, the right activities, that it'll sort itself out. And you say both of these camps, both those that say, yes, there is a soul, but it needs to kind of be uh, investigated and you need to go figure it out yourself. And this other camp that says it should be treated uh, just by addressing the chemistry, both of those, I think, are, are obstacles for the Christian. Because we want to say there most certainly is a soul. This inner part of our being that needs to be put right with God, and when it's not, terrible things go wrong. And the last thing then we want to do is really look further into ourselves, but rather we want to look to the one who helps us from without. And while there's a lot of debate on the soul, I actually think there's quite compelling evidence uh, for it. If you just look at our own time uh, in America, you say there's never been really a more pampered age, uh, an age where we're more uh, taken care of physically, and yet we're not, we're not well. That psychology is on the rise. You know, we've got a number of counselors that we talk to in, in the ministry. They say they're, they're booking many, many months out and becoming busier and busier. That psychology is on the rise. And you think of that very word, right, psychology? That that word, you break it down, it means the study of the soul. And so while we don't want to admit that there is this part of ourselves that's, uh, that, that, that really needs to be paid attention to, I think every indication is, well, while we can take care of things cosmetically and while we can have prosperous lives and have the right job and tick all the boxes, something can go deeply wrong on the inside of a human being. And we want to argue persuasively and winsomely that what we think that is for the Christian is to get right with the one true God, to surrender our lives to him. And one way we do that is by developing habits and routines uh, to cultivate that connectivity to God, to get in a a lifestyle, a, a a way of living that connects us to God and keeps that soul, that inner part of us alive and uh, and flourishing. And I think about you know anything that's worth doing takes time and repetition. That be it, you know, on the one hand, the relationships that you most value. Think of the people in your life that mean the most to you. Say, well, you might run into somebody on the street corner tomorrow at your job. You'd say, you'd never say that's the most important person in your life. Why? Because you haven't had any time with them. You've not worked through anything with them. Alternatively, the people that matter most 
are those relationships you've devoted your time and your energies and your consistency to. We say we're kind of persevering in love. That's what's valuable to the human being. Take your vocations. You know, what they call a master craftsman. Say, how do you develop a skill like that? Well, you do it over and over and over again through repetition. That, that, that no matter what you take, the things that we value most, the kinds of people we prize, the activities we prize, are taken, they take time to develop, and they take routines. And so if we're willing to say that there's a soul, and we're willing to say that the degree of health in that soul is how well we kind of orientate it towards the one true God, then doesn't it make sense that we ought to pay attention to habits of the soul, things that we do routinely, with great repetition, with great care, so in fact this relationship between human beings and God can be established. Now in order to do this, Joel said, I want you to talk really about the purpose of rhythms and the purpose of habits. I said, you got the right guy, because I love routines, and I love rhythms, and I love habits. I remember some joke and say, Austin, you're a student of routine. I am. I'll ask you, what do you do, you know, tell me about your day, and I, I like that regimentation, but I'm going to make a case, I hope, that this is inbuilt into the created order from God himself. And as we embrace order and habits and routines, they're not something that restrict us, but actually something that gives us great freedom. So the first thing I want us to notice as we think about habits, routines, and orders in our daily life is to notice that there's tremendous order in the created world. I've talked about this here before in the context of Psalm 19, but everywhere we look, we see God's order and his beauty imposed on, on creation. You know, all the bickering that Christians do on the age of the earth. You know, you open those first few pages of Genesis and people say, well, is the age of the earth this or that? And what do we mean? What does the word day mean? And all of those kinds of battles. You say, if we do that, we, we miss, I think, a, a grand point of those opening chapters of Genesis. And it's this, that God's a God of order who controls all things to his liking and can impose a structure on things that's really to the benefit of the crown of his creation, which is human beings. Do you notice ever in verse 2 of the Bible? I'll just read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, really important. Now the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the, of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You say, what an unusual line. Say, God creates everything, but then he creates everything without any form. He says it's without form, and it, there's stuff, but it's without form, and it's void. As the other translations say, there's chaos. And then what we have is the very deliberate movement of those seven days, where God imposes order and systems on the stuff. So the Hebrew grammarians, for example, they tell me, say, you know, we in English, we really just translate seven different Hebrew words with one English word, make. It says Hebrew has seven words, and uh, while we say God speaks everything into existence, we also want to think what else that word make can mean. So when God makes the heavens and the earth and he fashions it, say it's much more like he's the grand architect, the grand, the, the grand artist who, who puts it together in, in a way that is both orderly and beautiful. So think about this. Maybe many of us this morning, we would uh, use the saying that, that we made our bed. Say, so when you use that phrase, you say you don't mean, we, we never would take that to mean that I'm claiming to have brought my bed into existence. What we mean by make a bed is that we've done it in such a way that's orderly and acceptable and right. In the same way, you might say that I make a cake for my mom today. 
we don't say, well, in, in some sense, you do bring the cake into existence, but really what you're doing is you're taking all those individual ingredients. You're fashioning them in such a way that's presentable in a beautiful cake. That's very much the idea of what we have in the opening chapters of Genesis, that God speaks the stuff into existence. There's no form, and it's void at the beginning, and then God, with his all-powerful word, imposes a good and right order for the crowning achievement, as I said, his creation, which is human beings. And no Notice, uh, often miss these days, right? We say, well, how long are these days? How do you have a day without the sun? We miss, I think, the key point, and that is this, the beautiful uh, making and adorning of our universe. Day one, what does he make? The day and the night. Notice how day four, in perfect reciprocity and beautiful order, he creates the sun and the moon, right? The sun to ordain the day, the moon and the night. Day two, he separates the heavens from the waters, right? The sky from the waters. Day five, the fish to adorn the waters, the birds to adorn the heavens. Day three, God makes the solid ground, right? He carves out uh, the place for habitation. And then on day six, what does he do? He makes the animals and the vegetation and human beings to populate the earth. And so we don't want to miss what's happening here, that God is a God of order. He's imposing, he's fashioning, he's creating the natural world in such a way that reflects his goodness. You know, the very sevenfold pattern is so intriguing, isn't it? It doesn't matter where you go on the globe. Uh, but we all kind of function in this seven-day pattern. You say, isn't it inbuilt into the Genesis account that God would work seven days and then rest? You say, well, God didn't need to rest. Why is it there? It's set up to be an orderly way in which we, as human beings made in his image, are to conduct our affairs. Now, some object is, well, I don't know about a Sabbath. I mean, it's not repeated in the New Testament. Are we supposed to do that? I don't think that we can say that Sunday has to be a Sabbath, but I think everyone would agree that when a human being does not rest, very bad things happen. Say, so we pastors, we're on, you get a lot of literature now, so you pastors do not rest and model what is given in Genesis that you're made in the image of God and you don't take some time to refresh your soul, then you're not living out this order that God's given us. So I do believe right from the very beginning of Genesis, what we have is a good God imposing order and structure and beauty in a way that makes sense to our minds. And don't we enjoy the great regularity of the cosmos? Say, so there's a lot of things I love about Northeast Ohio. I didn't always want to live in Northeast Ohio. My parents will say I went, that's why I went to South Florida, but there are no seasons in South Florida, and uh, I miss that. And one of the uh, many reasons I like coming here is because I can always look out this window, and I like seeing the seasons. So there's times when you, can't, you can see right through those woods, right? And now we have spring, and the waters are coming. So there's great regularity in the seasons. And so isn't that a reflection of a good God, the kind of death and life cycle year after year, the seasons, the temperatures, he brings them about, right? We're dependent on him in each and every day of our lives. How about in our own, how do the scientists describe the natural world? They'll talk about ecosystems and solar systems, and our own bodies are made up of a, of a number of different systems. Some say nine, some say 11, right? we got the cardiovascular system and the digestive system. You say everything's a system. It's well-designed. You talk to a doctor or physician, they say, look at the human body. It's got a really good design. It's got a really good system. That's because there's a really good orderly God, and each of us are dependent on him for these systems working. And when we look at the world, we think about our bodies, we say he's good, he's smart, he knows what he's doing, and we should be in tune with him. There's order in the natural world imposed and designed by God. Now let's take this a step further into our own assembly today. Say, is this God of order? 
is there a manner in which he wants to be worshipped? And we say, yes, there is. Those of us familiar with his word say God is very particular about the way that he's worshipped. So those of you, I know you have a very good Bible reading plan here. I've picked one up myself the last couple of years. But you do your Bible reading plan and you, you, know, you get to the second half of Exodus. So the first half of Exodus, everyone loves, right? God's great redemptive narrative, you know, the parting of the Red Sea and the plagues. You say that is among the best literature ever. And then you get to chapter 25 and what happens in Exodus? Tabernacle dimensions. Say, who memorizes the tabernacle dimensions? No? And then after tabernacle dimensions, you get the kind of stuff that's to go into the tabernacle and how that's to be measured. And then after that, you get the priestly garments. What are the people that work in the temple? What are they supposed to wear? And right after you say you've made it through that part, you know what happens then? The whole thing's repeated as the Israelites obey that stuff. It's actually repeated twice. Now, some folks make the mistake. They say, well, that's boring. I've got to get that out of my Bible. Who's going to pay? Say, that's a big mistake. Say, I think there's great theological importance in that, and it's this. God cares about how he's worshipped, that he's not a plaything, but rather he's a person. That it, he's in his personhood, he says, this is who I am, the God of all creation, and my creation is going to worship me in a systematic and orderly way. Say, what about then what comes next in Leviticus? You know, you say the same thing. You're reading Leviticus, and everyone says, wait a second. You come in contact with a corpse, and you need the ashes of a red heifer? How weird is that? I mean, when you bring... Say, no, God has imposed a sacrificial system. Because we need that regularity in our lives, right, to be reminded of who he is, that there is a right and proper way to worship the God of the universe because he's a person and he's revealed it to us in such a way. Now, this too, we could say, does that, I mean, really picked up in the New Testament in a way? You know, say, I get the Old Testament sacrificial system, but is there an orderly worship in the New Testament? You say, absolutely there is. So if you read a book like Corinthians, right, that Corinthian church is a mess. You know, they say, some estimates say there's only about 50 people there. You say they're committing uh, every known error, it would seem. And at one point, you know, they're, they're being snobbish to one another. I mean, there's factions. They're, they've got a lot of stuff wrong. And at one point, Paul would cry, says, all things should be done decently and in order. In other words, there is a kind of right way to worship God. And we know that because he's self-disclosed in his word. A God who's imposed order who sets up and sustains all the systems, says there's a way that I want to be worshipped, right? And chiefly through the person of his son. That is the right worship of God. Now, one other point then before we move more to our level of things is the notion of orthodoxy versus heterodoxy. We don't talk about this a lot. Say, people say orthodox and we think Greek orthodox, you know, capital O, the Eastern Church. Say so the word orthodoxy, small o, means right glory or right belief. That for centuries, really over, you know, up until very recent times, Christians would have known very well about the difference between orthodoxy and heterodoxy. In other words, there's false ways of, of thinking about God and, and false ways of construing God. Now, what's happened is our age has confused the notion of tolerance with being the accepting of all things at the expense of truth. So we kind of warp this view, and we don't like to talk about it a lot, but you say this is very important for us to realize that God is orderly God. He's given us a way to worship. He's revealed himself in his Son, and we can't just tamper around with that and say, well, this is what, the way I want God to be but rather to say this is who God is. We come to him on his terms. We put our souls in line with who he's revealed himself to be, and that's the way forward. So there's order in the natural world. There's order in how we worship. 
Now, how do we think about this then on the human plane? If that's God and how he's revealed himself, what about us? Say so some people hear order and routine, and we think, well, that's very confining. I don't want those rules. I mean, I think it was Emerson who said, you know, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. You know, this transcendentalist, we don't want routine. Let's kick that to the curb. We want to say no. Structure and order are good gifts from God. In a moment, we'll see, I actually think impossible without to, li- uh, uh, to live without some structure and some order. And I think this is true on both a macro level and a micro level. What I mean by the macro level is this. So, for example, you say we grow up saying the Pledge of Allegiance, right? And those last lines of the Pledge of Allegiance, I think, really anchor the great truths of what America is about. You say with liberty and justice for all. Say so those are the two great poles of American political thought. So how can we be free and how can we have a just society? But all the political philosophers say those are actually secondary things. So you cannot have a just and free society without one that first values order. That order is always in the first cause. So someone like Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, spent a lot of time developing this point as a sociologist. You can talk about justice all you want, talk about freedom, but unless a society values good order and the rule of law, you can toss justice and freedom out. Order is primary. Order is necessary, and only on those can we build on these other virtues. That's true in the macro level, but how about on the micro level? Say, how would your life work without structure and habit? Say, not very well, I would think. I remember back in, when I was 18 and I started college, my parents who are here today, they said, well, you know, 15 credit hours, that is normal for a first-year undergraduate. Take 15 hours, that's full-time student. They said, we better only sign them up for 12. <laughs> so I only took 12. That's the fewest number of credits you could, you could take while being a full-time student. So that meant that I had 12 hours a week, 12 hours a week where I needed to be somewhere. So I had a lot of time on my hands. I didn't really have any relationships that I needed to develop in particular. I didn't, uh, you know, have a job. I just knew that those 12 hours a week I should be in class and that was it. So I had a lot of time. Structure was not that important. I remember the guys in the hall. We played a lot of that board game Risk. If you know Risk, it takes, when it's properly played, it takes a very long time to play. We said I played a lot of Risk. I mean, many, many, many hours uh, devoted to Risk. And uh, the point being, you say, structure at that point in your life, I think you could kind of say, well, it's not that important. But when life happens, that is, you grow and mature, and there are responsibilities, children and other people and relationships that devote your energy, you really very much do need a structure and habits and routine. And those things come to us as a gift from God when we use them, a gift in order to fulfill the things that we're called to do, and they're so very important. And take this from a different angle to say, is it really important for human beings to have structure? Think about small children. So do small children thrive on structure? Of course they do. I don't know much about parenting, but the few books that I've read say they very much value structure. That's where a little child finds a, a great life, right? So if you impose a rule, and that rule has consequences, and the, the rule's violated, and there are no consequences, that is not good for their little minds. What's very good is when you can be as consistent and as, pos- as predictable as a parent as you can be, to have the things that you say backed up by actions, that those predictive things are very healthy for young children, and so it is for us. Take, for example, on your church website. I've noticed this on church websites the last five years. I don't know if you could tell me later if this is new. All the churches 
have a little tab that says, what to expect. And say, I think the millennials need that tab. Because they're very nervous, right? Say, well, I don't want to go there. I don't know what it's going to be like. Say, you need to spell what you can expect. When you walk in, this is what's going to happen, and this is going to happen, and then they're going to sing a little bit, and then you're going to be asked to shake hands with everybody, and then a guy's going to get up and hopefully talk from the Bible, and then there's going to, you know, so they want to know uh, what to expect in order, why, why is that, the, why would anyone want to know what expe- to expect coming into a new place? Because there's security in that. Say there's security for the human soul. All this to say is order and routine and developing of habits is not something that crowds in on us in a way that says all of a sudden I'm, you know, kind of limited in a way that I'm subhuman, but rather these are God's gifts. When I use them and I put myself in tune with him and his rhythm, that they actually can make me more alive. So habits now specifically. We could define habits as responses developed through repetition. A few examples, I think a good, you know, you talk about bad habits being developed, very hard to break, but I think of just everyday habits like grammar. Um, So when I'm standing up here speaking, thank goodness I'm not really thinking about subject, verb, object, right? I mean, I'm I'm thinking that I'm speaking, I have to prepare my sermon, but I'm not really thinking, okay, now I have to have this word. Thank goodness, why? Because over the repeated use, it's my default mode. All of us, we speak English. So the default mode is to hopefully speak grammatically uh, correct English, and we've developed that over repeated, you know, repeated use over time in such a way that's who we are. How about cycling? You know, this time of year, you can get back outside on your bike. You say, yeah, you have to think about getting on the bike and say, well, now I want to go, but you're not really thinking about each step pushing down on the pedals. Why? Because you've done it so much, it's the default mode. So we want to say, are there things like that in the spiritual journey that can be developed so they're the default mode. So how about something, I'll just take an example, it's later in your notes, but we'll go to it now, but something like hope. So whatever you've got going on in your life, say terrible news last week, or maybe this week, it could be coming, you say the whole kind of bottom falls out, is the default mode, I'm in big trouble here, and I'm gonna be angry, and I've gotta get, or is the default mode, wait, there's a God who's in control, And I've put my hope in him, and he knows better than anyone else what I need. In other words, there's an immediate kind of response that's been developed in your soul as to how to respond. How about with a very difficult person? Sometimes called a VDP. And uh, a very difficult person, you say, is my default mode to get angry and frustrated and say I've been wrong? Or is my default mode, hopefully, that I've cultivated over time, wait a second, I've been forgiven much by Jesus. And I want the grace to flow out of my life. That that's my default mode. The hope and the grace and these Christian virtues are the immediate response. In the same way, speaking or getting on a bike, that there are these impulses that we've developed, so might it be in our Christian journey. And this, again, needs to be developed uh, over time and daily. You ever notice, just want to draw your attention to that paragraph in the notes, how many times, you know, daily is used in Scripture? I think this would be a very good study. Notice, I'll just read one passage here from Exodus, that same uh, section that I referenced earlier, but listen to what the priests are doing. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. In other words, every day that those priests would go up, they'd make those sacrifices, how? Day by day, Regularly, First Chronicles 23.30, what do the singers do in the temple? They get up and every day, every day they get up and they praise God and they thank him. 
Psalm 25, right? We wait on the Lord all the day. Luke 9, 23, this famous verse, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Or how about the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. You know, Pastor Donald Schaefer, a man that means a lot to me in a lot of ways, Pastor Jonathan's father died about five years ago. You know, he would tell me, he said, young man, surrender is always a day old. I had to think about that. I said, what, you know, what do you mean? He said, well, you're, you need to surrender your life afresh every day to God. That you can't just do it on a one-off, you know, any more than somebody who's trying to become a great runner, you know, would go out and do one run. You say, no, you're going to surrender your life daily to these truths. God, I put my hope in you. God, help me to display your grace. May that be my default mode. May it be so automatic. May I give thanks to you every day. May my body be that living sacrifice every day. Give us this day our daily bread. I don't have food on my table because I'm clever, because I've got, I, I pushed all the right buttons. I've got food on my table because God has been kind. He's given me this day my daily bread. That's the habit of the healthy soul that we're talking about here. And then lastly, spiritual habits are a means of grace. See, means of grace is a tricky term, an important one, but it's used differently in different Christian denominations. So we want to be careful. Some people hear that when there are Christian practices, that if you do them, then God's kind of on the hook to do something for you. It can sound very works-oriented, right? So you do a prayer, and then God does this. Or you come to the church assembly, and then God does this. That's not what we mean by a means of grace. A means of grace, alternatively, is when God clearly asks us to do things or shows us the right things to do, and we do them, that God and His Holy Spirit uses those things to edify us and to remind us of our covenant relationship to Him. So the spiritual disciplines of prayer and scripture reading, you know, some people say, well, if I read my you know, Bible 10 minutes a day and I tick the box, then God has to do this for me. That's not the idea. The idea is that I want to read my Bible every day because in reading my Bible, God, through his Holy Spirit, will edify my soul and remind me of my covenant relationship with him and vitalize me in such a way where I can carry out what he's called me to do. In the same way, do I pray? Okay, got my two minutes down, Lord. Uh, now I'm going to have a good day because you're going to do it for me. Say, that's not the idea. But when I pray, God edifies me. He infuses his thoughts into my brain, right, that he's going to then a kind of awaken me to my calling in the covenant, awaken me to what he's asked me to do. That's what we mean by a means of grace, something God uses to speak to us and edify us and remind us of our covenant commitment. So not a work for God, but something, again, he gives to us so that our souls may be awakened. So how about now, very practically, you get into really then the hard part. A lot of us might know, say, I wish I could do spiritual disciplines, I know that I need to do them, I just can't do them because I'm too busy. I'm not in the habit of quoting Bill Hybels, but I do remember the one name of his book. It said, I'm too busy not to pray. <laughs> Say, that's true, isn't it? Say, we just need to remember Dallas Willard, Joel quoted him either last week or the week before, said we need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. To ruthlessly carve out the time to cultivate these practices of the soul. Am I going to do that? How can I do that? Can I designate both times and places to think about God? In a world that crouches in on that, says, oh, no, come on, more, more, more activity. Keep going, more responsibility, more money. Go for it. We need to say, no, I'm not doing that. I need to think about God. 
I need to give him his place. I need to develop these habits where I can both put his gospel on display and fulfill my calling. You know, one of those, I think, an underestimated, uh, in, you know, is the place. You know, we talk about the time, but how about the place? Say maybe a chair that's really the place in the world where you can go and say, you know, everything's right in that chair. And that's where I think about God, to set those places aside to give him the time. And how do you start? You know, what I mean by that is that what they call atomic habits. You say you want to develop a new habit of the soul. You start very small. Say all the experts on habit, I think that's the name of the book, The Atomic Habits, says you, you, don't, you start with a, a goal that's seemingly silly that it's so easy. So say your marriage is not in good shape. Can you, for 30 days in the morning, tell your wife, I love you? So that's a very easy goal, isn't it? I mean, you should be able to do that. I love you. I mean, one line. So, but that's the idea, right? You say, if I want a better marriage, I need to start with a very small habit. The same way you want to become a good runner. You don't all of a sudden go out and do 10 miles. What's going to happen if you do that? You say, you're going to be absolutely miserable. You're going to hate it. and You're not going to do it again because that's not the way to do it. You start by running two minutes. And you might run two minutes for 30 days, very slow, to develop a new habit Start small. If you start too big, you'll be discouraged, but rather start small and build on that and be very patient in the same way you would with relationships or your vocation. How about, you know, setting apart more specific times when you have to do other things? You know, Pastor Steve Harper, uh, a colleague of mine, you know, he gave me a really good tip. He said, you know, every day I drink coffee. And I always uh, make it, you know, in my coffee pot. And he says, so what I started to do is as soon as I prepare that coffee and I hit the button on, that's my cue to go pray. And while that coffee pot is brewing, I'm on my knees every day. In the same way that I have that coffee, that's the way I'm going to do my devotions. You think we all have stuff like that. Maybe it's a commute. You know, we might have a favorite uh, talk show uh, host in the morning. So you know what? I'm going to just for three minutes turn off that talk show host and think about God and develop and cultivate these habits of the soul. Ladies and gentlemen, it's so very important in an age that prizes busyness and prizes gain say that we need to make room for God. It's such a silly saying to make room for God, but to say I want to make him a priority. I want my default mode to be to think about him. Yeah, life's going to cave on and on me. What am I like when I'm pressed? Have I developed unhealthy habits? Have I developed worldly habits? But can I see he's a God of order, that he's given us such order and habits not to confine us, but to liberate us. And through these, it's a means of grace. It's a conduit, if you will, to connect me to him. And when I do it and I'm disciplined in it, it pays major dividends in my relationship and my walk and in kingdom advance. So with that, I'll invite Pastor Jim back up and pray. Father, thank you very much for your good order. For the, the systems of the world, the systems of the body that you, by your grace, keep going. I do believe every single bodily system in this room is uh, functioning because you will it to be so. And even as we look at a, a springtime here and the, the flowers and the vegetation popping up again, we'd be reminded of how you fashioned the universe to your liking, even in the psalm that Neil read, that you fixed in order, as Jeremiah 31 would say. And Lord, may we be in tune with that, both as a body who worships you, but then in our devotional life. Help us to think carefully about the habits that we develop. Have we, developed, have we set aside any time at all to cultivate a healthy soul relationship with you, to get the inside, the deepest part of ourselves in tune with the creator of the universe? Help us to do that. Help us to start small if we want to make an inroads here. 
May we encourage one another in this body. We thank you. May Jesus be lifted high. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to draw you deeper into a meaningful relationship with him. Hope Community Church is located in Olmstead Falls, Ohio. If you would like to find out more about our church, please visit us at hopeolmstead.org.